As they used to say on Monty Python, and now for something completely different. This week's spotlight is Evert-Jan Overneel, a Dutch philosopher who currently works for World Vision International as their advisor on faith and secular contexts. So why are we listening to him? Well, it's not for his investment advice, but trust me on this. He's interesting and has a worthwhile perspective on globalisation and how the world is changing. I started by asking him about climate change, but soon got onto the big questions of optimism, hope, and the shift in economic power in the world today. Yeah, so we will have to make an educated guess, so to speak. That's inevitable. There are a few things that we could be proactive about. Two things. Uh, one of the major flaws in our financial system is, of course, that there's a too big gap between risk takers and risk bearers. So higher levels of accountability will may help cope with some uncertainties in our economic system. The other one is another major uncertainty right now is that there are major gaps in our employment given because of globalization. You know, some jobs go, go away, leave the country and don't come back. And those who have those jobs and cannot re-educate or, you know, be retrained in time, they are without a perspective. We will have to be have a kind of welfare state 2.0, not the old one, but a new one, where we think of those that can't cope with the gaps in employment that are created by economy turning global. There can be a lot of disturbance coming out of that, you know, that looks a bit like the 30s of the last century, where people are without perspective and turning into, you know, looking for radical solutions. Um, so I hope the financial system, the economic system, can somehow be stabilized by having higher levels of accountability. And the other one is we we have to deal with the people that can't have a proper uh, place in the economic transitions. Well, you talked about globalization. To what extent does your philosophy encompass technology as well and the prospect of people losing their jobs from robotics and automation? So it's globalization, it's automation, it's robotization. Those are the three major factors in the extent to which we will have particular jobs in the country. But technology is also the, the, the wild card that can also lead to new opportunities. This is why I don't know if I'm a pessimist or an optimist, because technology can certainly come up with solutions that we didn't think of today and suddenly change the whole game. And there can be new employment coming out of that. Just keep in mind, some people lose jobs because they, these jobs move to other countries, and there may be new employment uh, opportunities because of new technology, but it may not be the same people. So others may benefit from the new jobs. Uh, some people will, will lose their jobs without having others, other jobs. So you, you will see a, a shift in opportunity, and there will be gaps, and there will be people left out. And there will be others incredibly benefiting from the new opportunities. But this whole transition, we will have to look into the social consequences of that because it will create turmoil in society. In your talks and your writing, you talk about seven ways to make what you call a profit stand in the storm. What do you mean by a profit stand? Uh, prophetic, yeah, well, you can also call it inspirational. But I would say, you know, being inspirational in, in today is almost being prophetic today because if you are capable of being resilient, stay calm, stay compassionate, stay hopeful in a time that is as uncertain as this, you're referring to some kind of faith in the future you have. And, you know, it's a, it's a slightly provocative, but that, that you could call that a prophetic stand. Um, and that 
I don't mean that in a very particular religious way. It can also be a wider way where where we express faith in the future, where we say, you know, this is still, um, we see, still see opportunities. We still see ways of moving forward and sorting this out. And the resilience that we express refers to a particular faith that we very much need right now. Politics is too much determined by the language of fear. We need to have a language of faith, and I don't care if that is a, if that's a religious faith or a secular faith, but a faith in the future. The, the, the fact that the positive things that we invest in are worth investing in because the good will prevail, you know, it's that, that kind of thing. We will need that in the future, and that's the kind of inspirational living that we need. So, in fact, several of the seven ways that you talk about are really all about optimism and, and hope for the future and vision for the future. Yeah. But not naive optimism. Well, as you pointed out before, what we have is uncertainty, actually. We don't know what's going to happen. It's very difficult, I suppose, to be terribly optimistic and hopeful when you have no idea what's going to happen. Well, I would say hopeful is not the same as optimistic. So I kept the word optimism out of this. But uh, hopeful, visionary, that's fine. So hopeful is, doesn't require naive optimism. It doesn't mean that you think everything will be all right. I think it's, it's even more powerful if you have concerns and you know that things are risky, that's the, the moment where it becomes inspirational of if people are, can still be hopeful. So hopeful is easy if you're an optimist. Of course you can, you can have hope if you're, if you're optimistic. But suppose that you see risks on the horizon and you are still capable of investing. That's inspirational. That means you, you believe in something. You believe that there are still opportunities. And even if you think that it is high, very risky because of the many uncertainties, if you still have the strength to overcome your own fear and keep investing, that's the kind of example that we need right now. In fact, you quote Luther as saying, if the world ends tomorrow, I'll still plant an apple tree today. <laughs> right. So that's the kind of spirit. So it doesn't mean that we are now coping with a world-end scenario. It just means whatever the level of uncertainty I want to keep investing. It's the kind of example that you need right now. In fact, I, I got a, an email from a, one of our subscribers the other day. He was saying he's in an investment club, and one of the members of the club who's been very successful as an investor over a long time has told everyone that they need to get, and he has gone 100% to cash out of all investments entirely and is advising all of his um, investment club members to go 100% cash. And that he's not planting an apple tree because the world's going to get in tomorrow. That's an entirely the opposite approach, isn't it? You're uh, disconnecting. You're, you're switching off, so to speak. I'm not ready to go with that scenario. I wouldn't call that the way forward because rather than transforming the system, you're abandoning the system. And in that way, you only make things worse because that leaves the system with the ones that don't want to transform it. If you have the strength to, to, to work on a different future, and, and probably this person wants that kind of different future, then work with, with the system. Try to transform and, and, and don't give up too easily on the form. Sometimes we can get discouraged because we think politics won't work for us. Well, we are democracy. Still, you know, make sure that we raise our voice in democracy. We still have opportunities. I think it's too early to give up on the systems that we work with. I think I like the fifth and seventh of your seven ways. The fifth being to stay stubborn and the seventh being to stay joyful. I like th those are the ones that really kind of resonate with me, if I can say that. <laughs> well, that, stay joyful means, you know, you, you keep celebrating the good things in life. It, you know, things get really lousy 
if we start to see life through the lens of everything that is wrong, if the wrong things in life and in our country and in the world start to determine our vision of life, that's a lousy life. So we will have to fall back on the things that we can still celebrate, have to fall back on the gift of life itself, the things that we celebrate, that we enjoy. You know, you can't charge your battery if you are not having moments of celebration. You need to charge that battery to cope with the risks and the responsibilities that we have. So you need to have that that alternation of joy and, and celebration and then picking up the pieces that, that need to be worked with. What sort of statistics do you have? Well, one of the fascinating things right now is if you can look at in the OECD numbers that in 2010, two-thirds of the middle class comes from Western countries. In 2030, only 20 years later, two-thirds of the middle class will come from Asia. That has a tremendous impact on any economic activity, any multinational in the future will focus more on the Asian, on the Asians than on the Westerners simply because most of the clients are there. And so it will be, have a tremendous cultural shift as well. The products will be more Asia-oriented than Western-oriented. So all the things, think of Hollywood films, the plots of, of a film. Um, if they're not doing product differentiation then, uh, and focus on the entire world market, then we will have more Asian products. Do you think it changes the way the world is going to be run? Absolutely. So we, our thinking will be affected. This is not just a shift in economic power. This is a shift in cultural power, in, in philosophical power. We will think more Chinese in the future. It's inevitable. It's interesting. I've seen charts, as I'm sure you have, and statistics showing that in the past, China was the preeminent country until it went away and it was taken over by America. Do you know what the world was like then? I mean, obviously, there was less travel and less globalization then. You have that chart of the... where you see that uh, 2,000 years ago, China and and India had almost two-thirds of the world economy. That lasted for 1,800 years, right? Because your share in the world economy was determined by the size of your population. Then, 200 years ago, your share in the world economy was determined by industrialization. And that gave us a head start. So then the West was industrializing earlier than India and China, gave us a head start of 200 years. Now they're catching up and things are normalizing meaning China and India soon having the biggest share in the economy. I'm not sure that much about India, but China definitely. I don't think we often regard it as normalizing, as you just put it. Exactly. You need to have such a chart in front of you to see that out of the 20 centuries, 18 centuries, India and China were the biggest. You make the perfectly reasonable point in something I've I've read of yours uh, that the world is reorganizing itself on an unprecedented scale. It's... um, you know, that, that there's a need for cooperation. But are you saying that the only solution to the problem is religion and faith? I don't think I, I ever made that point. What I would say is what we need is resilience in a time of transition. And wherever you get your resilience from, that's fine with me. But um, resilience in a time like this, in times of insecurity, of job insecurity, you know, areas of pension and care, every insecurity requires a particular resilience. And the only way you can get resilient and insecure in certain times is to have a particular hope or particular faith in the future. But I'm not thinking of any particular kind of faith for anyone. But there is, you need to have some kind of perspective that helps you to cope with the higher levels of uncertainties. But the very interesting point you make, I think, is that it's at a time when cooperation is really needed on things like climate change, terrorism, 
pandemics, nuclear threats and so on. There's a tremendous amount of need for cooperation. However, we seem to be at a time when countries are more interested in protecting their own national interest than ever before. It's the most surreal combination that we have right now. The whole planet is shouting for overcoming differences. You know, if you think of climate change, cyber threats, terrorism, trafficking, slavery, pandemics, nuclear threats, it's very easy to mention a whole list of issues that shout for cooperation. And the current Western trend is towards closing the curtains, pretend the rest of the world doesn't count. It's the most bizarre combination that you can imagine right now, but of course not totally ununderstandable. It's, of course, a response to the fact that in the midst of that reorganization, we are losing control in the West. We are not the ones having the big say anymore in, in, in the decisions. And so we're feeling that the planet and the world and our nation and our country is slipping through our fingers. So it's a very natural response to want to have the control back, except the planet doesn't care if we are seek nationalistic solutions because they still need international solutions. You also say that um, the Westerners have abandoned the grand narratives that have made them resilient in the past, which is both Christianity yeah. and communism. Exactly. What about the fact that China, which is, I suppose, the leading light of the non-West that is gaining control, is supposedly communist? They have a more flexible mindset than we do because we, we in the West, we think either or. They can combine a lot of different perspectives. Um, but I was especially thinking of the West. I don't think that the nervousness is so much spread all over the, of the planet. It's a particular Western nervousness because the, China is not at the moment at, on the losing end of globalization. They are still gaining. There's still, still an overall sentiment of hope in China because they are still getting a lot of people out of extreme poverty and, and there's a, a rising middle class. So they're on the side of seeing opportunity. That, does, that requires less resilience than, than Westerners that have to give in some of the, the wealth that we had before and securities that we had before. I think this thing about losing the Christian and communist narratives is, is very interesting because obviously it, it's true. The loss of the Christian narrative has been slightly more gradual than the loss of communism because that was about the fall of the wall. Talk to us a bit about what that has meant in your view and the shift towards self-reliance that's involved. In the last 50 years, we could simply afford abandoning all the religious and ideological, ideological perspectives that used to give us hope and consolation. You can also put it this way. The old narratives could not offer us something better than we already had. The narratives of the past, they thrived on a particular difficulty in life, you know, misery, uh, lack of certainty, whatever it was. And the narratives helped us to cope with that. And they offered us a better future. It was either in the afterlife or it was a coming of a, of a revolution that everyone hoped for. Whatever it was, there was a difficulty and it, this narrative helped. Now, but, but in particular, but if, I can, if I can just interrupt, in particular those narratives yeah, sure. were, were about cooperation rather than individualism, Absolutely. weren't they? Both of them. Exactly. The whole, the whole, yeah, the whole point was it was a joint perspective. So you were not alone as well. But it also helps you individually. Now, what we did, what, suppose you get into a situation where, where these hopes don't matter anymore because what you hoped for has been realized. You're wealthy enough not to be a communist anymore. 
And so what you see is the, the urgency of the old narratives was gone, and so people didn't need it anymore. But then, now we're entering into a new stage of our Western history, and we actually get back to higher levels of insecurity and uncertainty. And, of course, we can always listen to our body and uh, listen to our biological responses, and they will never make us have no answers. Um, but what I hope is that we have more than biological responses to fear and discontent, and that we can also respond as human beings that are capable of hope and compassion. And for that, you need a perspective again. In fact, you say that uh, without spiritual resilience, biology will take over in turbulent time. What do you mean by that? It means that we always have physical responses to fear and discontent. And that's what some politicians thrive on, to connect with fear and discontent. So this is why they need to keep feeding that fear and disconnect because discontent, because that's exactly what their their success is based on. Um, it's much more difficult right now to base um, uh, political solutions on, on hope and compassion. Uh, but that's exactly what we need. We can't only have short-sighted answers where we tribalize, where we get back into ethnical distinctions uh, religious distinctions, just to feel safe because we feel afraid. That's a more biological way of, of dealing with issues. The, the planet won't go away. We'll have to, to move beyond our shadows, look for international solutions. That requires that we also can think of the well-being of other nations. That requires compassion, sympathy, and all that is a more spiritual response. So what you have is biological response being very self-centered, very much into saving yourself on a national level. What the planet requires and the future requires is a spiritual response where you can also think on someone else's behalf. Well, so do you feel, as you observe all this, do you feel optimistic that that's what will happen or pessimistic? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one because I'm wondering myself, am I an optimist or a pessimist? Actually, what I see as the major issue right now is that we have to deal with uncertainty. I don't know if things will go well or wrong. You know, think of a pandemic. You can have all kinds of doom scenarios. Maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe it does. So there can be a lot. It's same with climate change. We don't know the level of disturbing events that can come out of these threats. What we do know is that we don't know. And that's called uncertainty. And we, that's a, a mental challenge that we have to deal with uncertainty. In the past, we were controlling the world. We were controlling world economy. We could, we could have think that we control things and, and look for solutions as if we are in control. Right now, we're facing issues that we don't control. And that's a mental challenge. So I would say, don't know if I'm a pessimist or an optimist, but I do know that we have to cope with uncertainties. That was Evert Jan Overneil, Faith and Secular Context Advisor for World Vision International. 